0: Good morning and uh, welcome to this time in our service. Certainly agree that the Lord has blessed us with a very beautiful day and it's a uh, good day to be here and worship together. Well, the last two times I preached, I uh, talked about the, the uh, subject concerning what I entitled the divorce dilemma. I uh planned on wrapping that up the last time and I time did not allow me to do that. I will make every attempt to get that to happen this morning because I think it's time to wrap it up and move on to other things. But um, but I do want to uh to make sure I cover this adequately as we're on the topic. And again, as I'm as I mentioned, uh the first topic I had regarding the subject I'm not necessarily preaching this because I believe we are on the cusp of having problems in this department in this congregation or even in a in a broader church to 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 say uh to put it uh, that way but um, it's more that it's such a settled position among us that I I questioned whether I completely um, uh understood in my own mind <clears throat> why we take the position we do when there are the, the ratio of uh, Christians that would see things the way we see them compared to another position would be quite large. I would guess it would be one to a thousand, maybe. I don't know. I'm not even sure. I would, I would be hard-pressed to put a, a number to it. But... Um, one can begin to question. Well, is the position right? Is it? Is it biblical? Is is this a right a right place to be when when we're so outnumbered in an, in an opposing view? And um, I would like to say this exercise for myself has um, settled me um, more confidently that I do believe it's a safe position. And I want to share with you my concluding observations on this and so why I feel this way this morning. And um, and I'd like you to uh, consider um, what we what we will speak to uh, this morning as we go through this. Um, The first the first time, just a little bit of review. The first time that we spoke on this topic, we simply went through the Bible and we just looked at at uh, verses that deal with this topic and from the Old and the New Testament, and we commented a bit on that. We didn't quite make it through, so we finished that up the last time and then we uh we pivoted a little bit and we began to look at common um, i guess i'll I'll say common defenses for a position of tolerating remarriage after divorce and uh, we looked at the exception clause in Matthew five and nineteen and um, and we concluded that 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 exception clause likely is there to make some room for um, divorce or separation in some very narrow cases, but it does not seem to give place for remarriage. We also looked at the uh, at the argument of an innocent party is uh, d- does the fact that there is perhaps an innocent party in a, in a sad situation like that does that make any room for for that party to be free to remarry, and we concluded that we did not see how that that would fit. So now I would like to move on to uh, just a few more um, arguments that are put forth for um, for remarriage, and I would like to then conclude this talk this morning about looking at more looking at our contemporary uh, our current contemporary position with the backdrop of our historical. Uh, position on this matter and see why the um, see see how we have arrived where we have we where we have arrived today and we'll we'll leave that for that. But anyway, let's move on. So um, the first thing we'd like to consider here this morning is what about this question? What about if two people were unbelievers that divorced and they then remarried and they then became believers? Does not the second marriage stand because, after all, the the folks were unbelievers when it took place, when the divorce and remarriage took place. Cannot that second marriage continue as valid in God's eyes? And I would like to put forth two comments uh, to that train of thought. Number one, Jesus did not attach his disapproval of remarriage to the sin of divorce. It is the reality of the first marriage that prevents the remarriage. It's not the divorce that that prevents it. It's the reality of the first. Also, consider that sin committed after conversion can also be forgiven. Okay, so um, the if this argument would be followed through completely. It would fall because, in essence, what is suggesting is that sin committed before conversion is somehow viewed differently by God and is forgiven in a different way than sin that is committed after conversion. So, if if that if that idea would stand, um, it, it would it would it would it would insinuate that somehow things done in the past before a conversion experience. Um, is erased in a different way than than sins committed differently. Think about this example. Think about the interchange between Herod and John the Baptist in Matthew fourteen, when Herod or John the Baptist told Herod that it is unlawful for him to have his brother Philip's wife. Now, as I read that text um, in preparation for this, there's one thing that did stand out to me. It does not specifically say that Herod and Herodias were married. It doesn't say that. There's an assumption we make that they were married, and until I prepared for this, I assumed that that was the way the text read. But it doesn't read that way, so we have to make a bit of an assumption that they were married. And so thus, we could also assume that perhaps they weren't. But whatever the case is, if we presume that they were married, um, consider the fact that both both of these people, Herodias and Herod, were ungodly people, uh, completely ungodly and and John is coming to this ungodly king and saying, "It is unlawful for you, O oh, ungodly king, to have your ungodly brother's ungodly wife, all right, sir, so The whole pack is ungodly, and i don 't think it would have changed a whole lot um, if they would have been converted if they would have been became christians and and would have at some point uh, followed the lord that Somehow that would have annulled this um this ungodly situation from the from the text it certainly would not uh seem that way, and that is in the event that they were married i i'm maybe there's secular history that could um either affirm that or disaffirm that but i'm we're going to assume they were married. The other angle that we want to consider is. Is the sin of adultery an act or is it a state? If the view is that the remarriage is an act of adultery, then it can be forgiven. But if if it is a perpetual state of adultery, then the argument stands. So the, 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 the question we could to help us understand this further. Let's let's think of it this way. This is a preposterous thing to think about, but let's let's consider that. Um, let's just take for an example that a that a um, that a thief a a um, uh, would be converted. He he made his he made his money off of just being a thief, right? That's the way he made a living. And uh, he he did this. He stole lots of things from lots of people, but he becomes converted. Is that thief now, does he have any responsibility to go back and make his wrongs right prior to his conversion? Or is that just totally forgotten, forgiven, and he has no responsibility to to make his wrongs right? Well, we'd say that seems a little, a little over the top. We would think he certainly uh, sh- should do that, shouldn't he? Would he be, furthermore, would he expect, would he be expected to find a more honest tree? Would he be, would it be considered over the top or unfair to think that he would maybe do something else instead of his thievery? Well, the Bible says, let him that stole steal no more, so it seems like that answers the question. My point is, maybe it's not a completely fair comparison, but if the thief is expected to make his wrongs right and amend his ways, Uh, why would not the adulterous affair also be expected post-conversion to make wrong the rights that are uh, prior to conversion? The point is this. Conversion does not erase the responsibility to correct and abandon past offenses and sins. It seems a bit presumptuous to me to suggest that divorce and remarriage prior to conversion removes the responsibility of the person to that first marriage and to make that to make those wrongs right. I will leave that one for now. I would like now to look at the um, the situation of Jesus with the with the Samaritan woman at the well and his comments to that woman. That some would say that proves that God recognizes multiple marriages as legitimate. When he said to the woman, you have had five husbands. What do we make of that? Let me just say this. Jesus was speaking to a very troubled woman. And the fact that he states that she had five husbands... Doesn't necessarily say that Jesus was giving his commentary on what he thought about remarriage after divorce in this situation. He was simply stating how things were in this woman's life. It, it is interesting to me though, however, that he does refer to these five men as husbands, and it does highlight to me the messiness of this poor woman's situation. After all, how does one have five husbands? A question that runs on the heels of this particular um, discussion, many times, is a hypothetical question that comes up, and I've heard it asked, and it, I've heard it discussed, where the the hypothetical is that you have um, two a couple that divorces and they remarry, all right? Then, in the hypothetical, that couple both become Christians. At some point, now, is that second marriage invalid? Can that couple be reunited? Leave their second companions, if you will, and become reunited with the first. And I will say that there is not um, complete uh, unity on this subject, um, even among us. Some would say the second marriage is is not valid, and so thus. The the two the two people could come back together, but it is a hypothetical after all. I don't know that I've ever heard of such a thing to be honest um, in a real life situation. I'm not saying it couldn't have happened, but I am not aware of one in, in which this happens. But let's just think this through just a little bit. What happens to the partners of the second marriage? You follow me? What if they had never been married? Now they were married. That was their first marriage. But now their partners became Christians. They're going to leave them. Where does that leave them? What's their options? Um, they Are they free now to remarry? Because after all, that was their first marriage, and they made a vow there. If one thinks it through, we, we just now have an exacerbated state of confusion. And again, um, what... What are we to make of these lifelong commitments to multiple people? It's a practical impossibility. But there's one thing that came to my mind as I was thinking through this. And, and I, I, don't want to, I don't want to project this as the, as the final answer to this question. But think back with me to the passage in Deuteronomy that we looked at the first time we talked of the subject where God said that if a man divorces his wife, that wife goes and marries another man, and that man divorces her, the first husband is not allowed to take that wife back because God said, that is an abomination, and I won't have it. Now, I'm not sure if that's if there's anything we can learn from that at all, but we do know this, in the Old Testament, that did not fall underneath God's approval. That, that that much we know. And it was called an abomination. I have not researched this, but I have read by somebody that supposedly did that any time something is called an abomination in the Old Testament, it, it is never approved of in the New. Now, I can't say that um, completely satisfactorily that, because, that I have done the research on that, but I, that is what I've been told. But I will say the word abomination is strong language. That it is. And so again, that is Old Testament, and I do not want to uh, to put that forward as the as the uh, final authority on this question. However, it perhaps does give us somewhat of an indication of God's mind on the matter. My concluding opinion on this is simply this: when people, anybody, begins to weave this tangled web of divorcing and remarrying. It leaves so many complications in its wake that it becomes virtually impossible to unwind. And it seems to me that the most safe and advisable position to take is to live a single life after that and fulfill the responsibilities that one is called to fulfill as best as possible in that situation. And again, I will say, I realize I'm saying very difficult things here when I say that. I truly understand that. Our human logic, our reasoning wants to find a way that is not so humanly difficult. And I I easily easily understand that too. Uh, Perhaps there's children involved that have to, um, you know, have this unpleasant experience. But my mind went to... Uh, again, the word of God. And I, was, and I was like, is there any instance in the word of God that we would have where somebody was called to make such a radical sacrifice to obey to obey God? And my mind went to uh, the book of Ezra. And I want you to just turn there. Turn with me to the book of Ezra for a second. This is not a complete uh, similar situation to what we're addressing, but it's close. If you turn to Ezra... 8 and verse 1. It reads like this. Oh, Wait a minute, maybe I have the wrong thing here. I think maybe I do have the wrong passage. Okay, it's actually Ezra 9. Now, when these things were done, the princess came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of of their daughters for themselves and for their sons So that the holy seed is mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and the rulers has been chief in this trespass. And then it says, And when I, that is Ezra, heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle, plucked off the hair of my head and my beard, and I sat down astonished. Ezra absolutely could not believe what he was hearing. Now, Turn with me now to the um, let's see Ezra ten, and we're going to read verses nine to seventeen. So in the inter intervening verses here, Ezra he he sorts through all this, and the the um, the people of Israel come together and they admit they had done some they had done a grievous thing here. And then in chapter 10 and verse 9, then all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered themselves together unto Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month, and all the people sat in the street of the house of God, trembling because of this matter, this particular matter of this, of these strange wives, and for the great rain. And as the priest stood up and said, ye have transgressed, ye have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do this, and do us pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. Then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, as thou hast said, so must we do. But the people are many. It is time of much rain and we are not able to stand without. Neither is there a work of one day, is this a work of one day or two? For we are many that have transgressed in this thing. Now let our rulers of all the congregations stand and let all them that have taken strange wives in our cities come at the appointed times and have them the elders and with them the elders of every city and the judges thereof until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter has been turned from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel and Jehaziah, the son of Tikva were employed about this matter and Meshalam and Shal, Shab, Shabbatha the Levite helped them. And the children of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest with certain chief of the fathers after the house of their fathers, and all of them by their names were separated and set down in the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. And they made an end with all the men that had taken strange wives by the first day of the first month. Now if you uh, read the, the following verses, it gives a whole long list of people that had this had this separation had to take place, and now, if you go to the very last chapter or verse of Ezra here, it says, "All these had taken strange wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. That seemed to be a um, something that they wanted to highlight like this was not really easy now, when you consider the the situation here and how um, This, this thing of taking strange wives from the wicked countries around them had been engaged in by the highest levels of authority, the way it sounds, and it trickled down and there was a lot of people that were involved in this. It seems like the easiest thing to have done would have been like, okay, let's just stop it here. Let, okay, nobody else do it, but it's gonna make such a mess that we have these children involved, we have all these, we have, we have quite a mess going on here. And so we're just gonna leave it. Everybody just stop dead the way it is. Let's just move on from here. I'm not doing this thing anymore. But they were not satisfied until they had undone their wrong, right? And I and I and I agree. This is not completely um, equivalent to what we're talking about today. But what I want to highlight is this was a very tough thing that people were willing to do because God wanted them to. They realized the only way to find peace with God was to go through this difficult thing. The words of Jesus come to mind again, that sometimes in this situation, a person must become a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake. All right, I'd like to look at one more here, um, another argument that we hear at times, and I've heard this one. And, it, and at, first, at first glance, it seems to hold some validity. What about in 1 Timothy 3-2, where Tim, or Paul is telling Tim, giving Timothy some of the qualifications of church leaders, and he said, the bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife. And, uh, I have heard it, an argument put forth, that this implies that there were divorced and remarried people in the early church, and the the stipulation was these people could not be in uh, in a place of leadership they had to be um, uh, that that could not happen well it is an interesting it is an interesting statement i would i would suggest that more likely what this is referring to is the practice of polygamy that happened among the gentiles and even the jews we you know we know of godly men that that had more than one wife in the Old Testament, don't we? Um, not exactly a, a a good situation, but it happened. Polygamy. And this was a real a real issue in the in the New Testament church. And I'm sure that they got that all sorted out. I I'm supposing there was perhaps um, <laughs> men that had two wives. I don't know. I don't know how that all worked. I don't I don't really have the um, the, um, the the details on that. But Paul made it clear that the leaders were not supposed to be that way, and so I think whenever you take the full counsel of God on this matter of divorce and remarriage, this seems like a again a, a relatively flimsy um, a sentence to take out and highlight and say, "Well, this here makes makes room for for this particular uh, practice." I will say this here too, and this is maybe just a side note, but. Polygamy is broadly rejected by the Christian church today. You only find a few fringe cults that would that would give um, some room for that. Pretty much rejected. And it's and it's rejected by society as a whole. Uh, you, when's the last time you met somebody that had two wives? Simon you know, same time. I, I never heard of such a thing, personally. And and the point I want to make is I would dare say that you could make almost a better argument for the practice of polygamy than you can for divorce and remarriage. If you really wanted to use some of the logic that's used to defend remarriage, you could you could you could make a fairly strong case for polygamy if if you wanted to use those same same um, uh, methods of interpretation in the scripture. Actually, this particular verse might even be one of them. But why isn't it why isn't it an issue in our society and in the Christian church broadly? Because it's not something we deal with. It's not been accepted by society, thus it is not an issue. And I think this maybe speaks to the fact that maybe too often Christians through the ages have just ran lockstep with the world in their uh, conclusions of things and have attempted to sanctify it by some method of interpretation through the scripture perhaps. All right. I'm going to conclude this message um, with a historical and current considerations and conditions that have formed our collective contemporary position. Now this is kind of a long somewhat of a history lesson here and I hope you'll bear with me if if you don't enjoy this. Uh pardon that. Let's go way back to the apostolic antinician church age. And what what that is, that's the time from the apostles to prior to the council of Nicaea. That that first 300 or so years of the of the early church. Again, I have not read the full volumes of the Antoninian Fathers, but David Brousseau has, and that name probably, probably you recognize that name. He is a man that has de- dedicated copious amounts of time to researching the stance that the Antoninian Fathers took on many subjects. He concludes, and I just simply quote him because I trust his, his, um, his research, that the early church did indeed make allowance for divorce. And in fact, he would say they actually encouraged it in a case where the one partner was flagrantly unfaithful. But they never made room for remarriage. I thought that was interesting, that that is his conclusion on where the early church stood. That is prior to the Council of Messiah. I read a few other things Um that respectable researches have, researchers have done on the Christian church from that time to the um, the Reformation. And now I'm talking about the, the true church. I'm not talking about the Catholic church. I'm not talking about other uh, apostate churches during that time. I'm talking about the remnant church. And these researches would indicate that the vast majority of Christians for many many years during those that era of time were committed to a very similar position. Other positions can be found no doubt, but they are in a slim minority whenever whenever you consider the the majority of what was considered as legitimate and biblical. But now I want to focus for at, at this point, I want to focus on our own spiritual forefathers, the Anabaptists. How have the Anabaptists arrived at our position today? Have they always felt that way? And this may surprise you. It surprised me. But I'm going to tell you how they felt, and then I'm going to tell you how I believe we've arrived at where we've arrived. You can already tell that there was a little bit of a difference there, all right? So first of all, I'm going to... I'm going to um, Just state that both the Dutch and the Swiss Mennonites, according to their writings, which we have a fair amount of, did make some room for divorce and remarriage in the case of unfaithfulness in a marriage. However, the Hutterites, as much as I can understand, never did allow for remarriage after divorce. And I'm just going to read you a short paragraph written possibly by Michael Sattler, and the title of this little discourse was called Concerning Divorce, and it was written sometime between the time of 1527 and 1533. It goes like this. He who separates or permits to separate except for the cause of fornication and changes companions commits adultery. But he who cleaves to a harlot, as Paul says, sins against his own body and is one flesh with the harlot. Therefore, he is separated from his own flesh in that he has attached himself to an alien flesh of a harlot, and his marriage is broken because they are no more one flesh. But the fornicator has become one flesh with the harlot. Therefore, the abandoned one or the innocent companion may marry whomsoever he wishes. Only it must be in the Lord. So, I mean, just, just to interpret that the way it's written, he is actually encouraging separation from an unfaithful partner, and he says you're free to remarry who you wish. Mel Simons, in a discourse called A Humble and Christian Defense, on page 911, if you wish to proof text or fact check this, um, at, but I should say this, this humble and Christian defense that he's giving, it is a large apologetic for the Anabaptist stance on many subjects, alright? And in this particular small discourse here that I'm about to read you, he was, he was rebutting the common, uh, perception that Anabaptists were polygamous. He said, we're not polygamous. We, we, that's not who we are. And I'm just gonna read you a sentence. Answering to the accusation of polygamy, I say this. We say one husband and one wife. These two. One husband and one wife are one flesh and cannot be separated from each other to marry again otherwise than for adultery, as the Lord says. So there you have it. Again, the Dutch Mennonites, at least in in Menno-Simons' writings, would have made some room for remarriage after, after divorce. Now, some find these quotes a bit unsettling and disturbing, and I sense there is a segment of the Anabaptist community today that are questioning whether our contemporary posture on divorce and remarriage is legitimate based on our historical posture based on these writings. So how are we to reconcile this? Or how are we supposed to think about this? Well, I'd like to further read to you a quote from the Mennonite Encyclopedia. It reads like this. The predominant approach to the problem of divorce among the Mennonites was direct and positive rather than indirect and negative. It consisted chiefly of stressing the obligations of marriage and an emphasis on the permanency of the marriage bond. This was evidenced not only by the dearth of literature on divorce, but also the lack of direct treatment of the subject in their confessions of faith other than insisting that marriage be in the Lord and that it should never be entered into lightly or unadvisedly. Literature on the question of divorce among Mennonites prior to the 50s, the 1950s is r- rather rare only occasionally did an article or editorial appear in one or another of the official, official publications of the various Mennonite bodies. Such as did appear were primarily of a hortative, or that means a strong, encouraging nature, and follow quite closely to the theme expressed above. So now let's just stop and ask the question for a second. Why do you suppose that there was such a dir- dearth of literature and lack of teaching and only a few scant sentences in our history books on this subject prior to 1950? And post-1950, it becomes increasingly a, an increasingly uh, addressed subject. If you would read, again, I made reference uh, last time or the time before, of different volumes that I have of the Mennonite Church from about the 1950s through the 1980s, and and the the divorce question is addressed multiple times. It's a hot-button issue, if you will. Why is that? This might answer the question. So I went to the divorce statistics of the U.S. starting in 1867 through today, and I found that rather informative. In 1867... The divorces per thousand people in the United States stood at .3. Okay? Very low. It did not reach 1 till 1911. It took to 1940 to reach 2. By 1946 though, however, it was at 4.3. Now I thought that was interesting that in, from 1940 to 46, we had jumped very significantly. But what happened in 1945, you history people? What happened in 45? What was that the end of? The end of World War II. And I verily believe, now this is just Dwight Burkholder speaking so you can just take this with a grain of salt, but I believe that the reason you saw divorce rates jump in 46 is because at the, toward the very end of the war, women went in mass to the factories to work to, pr- to to produce weapons and so on. So what happens at factories? We're working side by side with other men while our husbands are over fighting, right? And then suddenly the war ends. And the men all come home. And maybe I had a boyfriend at the factory and now here's this man that I don't really like anymore. I'm just making that all up, right? But I have a feeling it had something to do with the end of that war that you saw that jump. Because I also find it interesting that from 19 46 to 1950, you actually had a reverse curve. It went back down again. Just interesting. But it climbs up to 5 per 1,000 by the mid-'80s, and by today, the latest statistics we have, which is 2022, we're back down to 3.2. However, what I'm not telling you is what the marriages per 1,000 were in those particular time frames, and I'm not going to bore you with that. But our marriages per thousand in this country have dropped off significantly in the last 10, 20 years. People just aren't getting married. So if you don't get married, it's kind of hard to get divorced, right? So we have almost a complete collapse of morality when it comes to this whole subject of divorce or of marriage in general. And you know that we now condone any kind of marriage. You can... I verily believe if I live to be 90, the time will come you can marry your dog. I I, I don't think that's over the top to think that. I think I think those days are not that far in the future unless God stops it in his province. So why am I telling you all this? Our Anabaptist forefathers were focused on front burner issues of their day. You can find copious quantities of literature on baptism, on the Eucharist, on the separation of church and state, on salvation by faith, and other Catholic and Protestant issues that they were focused on in those times. Pick up Menno Simons. You will get so tired of reading about some of those subjects, you won't believe it. He was focused on the issues of his day. And for centuries, divorce and remarriage was a collective societal shame. And this served as sufficient deterrent for the entire society, including the church. One does not need to write about something that is not a problem. In other words, when have you last read a um, uh, uh, an article on the sins of polygamy? We don't write about that because it's not a problem. All right. When have you last read something on the snares of technology? You're reading about it all the time, aren't you? They didn't write about that in 1950. Does that mean they didn't have a problem with it in 1950? It simply means it wasn't an issue in 1950. That's what it means. From 1950 forward, we have an increasing tsunami of social issues. And the lack of commitment in marriage was one of the primary breakdowns, in my opinion that has led to the complete moral collapse of our current society. Now back to a little bit more focused on our Mennonite church. In the mid part of the last century, the 50s and 60s, the Mennonite church had an increasing interest in urban evangelism, and that was a good thing, that was completely legitimate. But when you when you go into urban evangelism, I'm telling you, you are going to meet up with all kinds of social issues that you don't have in the country. And divorce and remarriage happen to be one of those. And so if you will take the time to read discourses and writings during that time, suddenly divorce and remarriage is a hot-button issue, and there is much discussion, debate, and controversy about this thing. But the, the official position of the church by that time was, that remarriage is forbidden after divorce. That is not something that the church uh, felt they could condone at that time. And so, ultimately, that was one of the main points. If you will follow history back uh, 50, 60 years, that was one of the driving points that that broke the conservative Mennonite church away from the the mainline Mennonites, if you will. And it is notable to me that many, if not all, of the mainline Mennonite churches who were interested in taking a more relaxed and easy approach in this area of divorce and remarriage also took a very similar path in other long-held doctrines. Practice of Christian woman's veiling, male leadership in the church, gender distinctive clothing, practical non-conformity issues, non-resistance, and on and on. All these things have been sacrificed on the altar of love and inclusiveness and are non-essentials to salvation. Okay? The whole thing went as a package is what I'm saying. Today, unfortunately, many of the churches that have accepted divorce and remarriage are now wrestling with homosexuality and other gender issues. There is no certain way to know this. But I'm going to make a guess. I'm going to make a guess that if our spiritual forefathers would have had to face the same issues in their society and the time they lived, they would have not come to a much different conclusion than what we have today. I'm making a guess there. But the fact that you don't, you don't hear much discussion or much um, deep diving into that issue tells me that it was a settled issue. It was not a hot-button issue. And had they had to face the things we face today, I think perhaps our stance and theirs would not be a lot different. But again, that's a guess. I have nothing to base that on other than a guess. I personally have no real uneasiness for taking a bit of a different stand today than what we did, our church did back, our Anabaptist forefathers, I should say. Because there are other issues which we also take a different stance. Menno Simons had an unorthodox view of the deity of Christ. Did you know that? He could not figure out how Christ could have anything of human flesh in him and live a holy life. And so he concluded that he didn't. He, he concluded that that Jesus did not have any human flesh in him. That he got from his mother Mary. Instead, the human flesh that he got, he called it celestial flesh that he got somehow from heaven. Alright? Very unorthodox. Um, are you uneasy about the stand we take? Um, that he did indeed share human flesh? My point is, again, you have a divergence there, but it it that's what you call growing in knowledge and grace. I would also like to if you to just consider this is maybe much less of an of a um, of a doctrinal issue much more practical but you don't have to go but 120 years prior to today and you will find that there were many maybe many isn't the term but there was too many uh, Mennonite people that owned stills and made beer and whiskey and not only made it they consumed it we would have a little bit of a problem with that today wouldn't we well should we should we maybe we should you know rethink that and Maybe I should open a still up up there in my place or something. My point is, there's nothing wrong with, with, again, growing in knowledge and more completely applying what the Word of God says. We don't have to, we don't have to feel bad about that or second guess our stance on things simply because somebody in the past thought of it in a different way. But I do want to say this quickly. We should know what, our people did in their past and if they did something more biblical than us then we should learn from that right there's nothing wrong with knowing where our past was and where we are today and seeing how that all lines up with the bible i will just ask you this has our has our stance on these issues been a detriment to holiness in any way the only way I could come up with that it, it could perhaps be a detriment to holiness is if we have some sort of spiritual arrogance or pride over our position. That's a pos- certainly a possible snare. But in general, I think we have found blessing in our positions on these matters. And I trust we're truly interested in finding God's ways and thoughts on these things. I would suggest if we begin to make exceptions especially in this matter of divorce and remarriage, my guess is it wouldn't be a lot different than the modern churches today. One little step at a time, we go from permitting it only in the case of adultery or unfaithfulness to extending that to this thing, and then the next thing, and then the next thing. And pretty soon it's just like the floodgates are open, and um, anything is fair game for divorce. For many churches today, the human collateral damage looks way too great to revert course. And the appetite for cross-bearing that Jesus calls us to is completely out of vogue. So to try to find a path backward would be considered completely unthinkable and is not even considered as a viable option. But I would just like to you to imagine for a second the powerful testimony that could be given to the ungodly if Christians all Christians, would truly follow Jesus' simple teachings on this matter. I believe the rising generations would be unbelievably blessed, but rather we are content, or they are content, hopefully not we, with the resting of Scripture to meet the current fad. Now, admittedly, our stance is narrow enough that it without question serves as a deterrent for many. And it brings me absolutely no joy to consider that fact. But again, I appeal to you, is it not a safe and biblical place? Has it not served us well? Has it not yielded strong family units? Has it not solidified the seriousness of entering into the covenant of marriage till death do us part and actually meaning it? And neither is it lost to me that we face many challenges in this arena personally. We have friends, we have family that have chosen to engage in this practice that we cannot approve of and we do not believe God approves us. And it can be a challenge to know how to relate to these people in a godly way. But I want to say, let us always be a silent testimony for God's attitude toward this curse by humbly and clearly drawing boundaries where it's necessary. I think it's completely appropriate that we do not attend weddings of people where one or the other is divorced. I think that's completely appropriate. And there's other boundaries that we could perhaps uh, choose to draw, and I'll let that between you and God. But I, al- I also want to say this. We are still called to treat humans with respect and kindness. We can set boundaries, but we don't have to be obnoxious about it, okay? And ultimately, too, Leave the condemnation to God. All right? We're not called to judge people. We're called to follow God as God has called us to follow him. And as I told my friend, I said, I will not condemn you for what you did, but neither can I bless it. And we have to leave it with that. So to end positively, three things. What can we do to keep these unhappy circumstances from making inroads into our circles. A vibrant relationship with Christ has to happen. We have to live above the moral smut of this world. We have to. We have to have pure God-honoring courtship experiences where there is unholiness and physical familiarity and courtship that will almost invariably guarantee unhappiness and unnecessary challenge in marriage. And number three, let us continue to exercise self-denial and unconditional love in our marriage relationships. There's probably no relationship on earth that you will have more opportunity to exercise self-denial and unconditional love than in a marriage relationship. And by God's grace, I can tell you it is possible and it is a blessing. May God help us to this end. Let's kneel for prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that to follow your word is indeed at times a cross, and yet it is a cross that is easy and is a burden that is light. And Lord, as we have uh, considered this matter of uh, marriage and the uh, blessing it is and sometimes the challenges it brings, Lord, let us be uh, mindful to follow you in these things help us to be loving people to understand the um the very difficult situations that many people find themselves in and to be a light and a uh a beacon in this dark age in which we live and uh ultimately lord we commit the um the situations that we know about and are involved in to you Lord, I pray that uh, redemption could be found in situations yet where there is uh, darkness. Lord, be with those of our number that are not here this morning, and that maybe you suit them a blessing and bless the remainder of our day. We ask this in your name. Amen.